Okay. Welcome in. Hour number two has arrived. I hope you enjoyed hour number one. We're going to try to crank it up for you in hour number two, and we'll begin with talking to our attorney general. We're going to have him on the phone here in just a second. Uh, before that, you need to just have a quick reminder that this is Tony Beam. I work at North Greenville University. I serve South Carolina Baptist at the Office of Public Policy there, and I also serve the folks of Five Forks Baptist Church as their interim pastor at the moment. Right now, we welcome to the program South Carolina's Attorney General, Alan Wilson. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How are you? Well, I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Are you are you mourning today? Are you uh, are you hurt that the South Carolina Supreme Court just kind of went, Nyet. they kind of snubbed you a little bit? Well, I've I'll be honest with you. I've been I've been down here in Walterboro for the yeah. last couple of weeks. <laughs> so is everybody <laughs> so else. Kind of busy. Whether whether anybody is really I said so is everybody else. I mean whether they're actually <laughs> physically down there. I mean it's every state website. If you go to it, it's page after page of Murdoch. So yeah, they're, yeah, down, so they're down I'm there. I'm so happy you. to talk about this issue uh, with you on with your listeners. Um, listen, I, I wasn't very surprised. Um, you know, I mean, disappointed, yeah, of course, but was I surprised? No. Obviously, rarely. I, I've never known the members of a court to grant a petition for rehearing, um, you know, different from the way they voted originally. It's almost never done. So this is not something that really surprised me, but right. it was the point that we wanted to underscore. We wanted to highlight the need that, you know, we wanted to put these judges on notice. We're not going to let you that this was a mistake or that, um, you know, after after you heard the outcries from the state on how you ruled, you know, we're going to give you another chance to change your position. And, you know, I didn't expect them to, but we wanted to give them the chance to. And, you know, they denied it. And, they, and listen, they have the right to deny it, but there's also consequences um, that go along with that. The General Assembly is going to have to pick this bill up or pick up this issue all over again and uh, take it from there. And, of course, there's other things we have in the pipeline to address these types of cases. Right. Well, and, of course, the General Assembly is in the process of that. There's a bill that would limit abortion beginning at conception in the House, and there's a bill that I think is going to get third reading today in the Senate that's primarily the language of the original heartbeat bill. It's just got a few additions that addresses some of the court's concerns that they revealed when they just said, said it was unconstitutional. So uh, we'll see. We'll let it play out. You think there was anything significant on the timing? I mean, I just felt like, you know, they released this decision on Wednesday morning right before the joint session when they're going to vote on a Supreme Court justice to take Kay Hearn's place, Justice Hearn, because she's retiring. That seemed a little, like, in your it, face. It, it, you know, it did. There were a lot of head scratches going on around the state about the timing of that. I don't know if that was intentional or if it was, you know, just – you know, bad luck, but that, that's when they decided to release it. I do think it's important for people to know what the state of the, of the, the law is right now in South Carolina. Yep. Um, and I do want to kind of go over that. Right now, Please. The, the current law of the land is 22 weeks, and I'm sure your listeners know this. Um, the court, in their majority opinion, even though I vehemently disagree with it, and I think they failed to follow the Constitution, um, they they signaled, a, a majority members of the court signaled, you know, one of the members of the majority said they would swing uh, possibly as low as 15 weeks. Um, so that that is something that is, uh, you know, you could probably shave another seven weeks off. That's with the previous court. We now have a new Supreme Court justice on the court. Um, I'm told that they seem to bend a little bit more originalist. You know, they, they read the law as it was written, not as you want it to be. And so that could have a different result. Um, and then, of course, there's a lot of talk right now about 
you know, people are upset that we have the first male court in, you know, however many years. And, of course, do people want diversity and representation? Of course we do. But what I want is, is I want people who are going to read the Constitution and apply it as it was written. Yes. And I don't care if that's five women, if that's five minorities, if that's five billy goats, you know, whoever is on the court, as long as they're interpreting the Constitution. Um, I don't care what they look like, what their gender or race is. I want strict constructionists. Um, that's who represents me. I don't look at someone's gender or their race or anything else. I look at how they follow the law. That is how I, that is how I identify as a law follower. So that is what we look for. And, Tony, I do want to say this. How this court ruled on this case um, is really a symptom. If we really we can we can pass as many pro-life bills, heartbeat bills as we want, or other kinds of bills, but judicial reform is something that this legislature, the governor, our our branch of government needs to take up because for decades now, for for over a century, the judicial branch has had an inordinate amount of power over the executive branch, and there is a check on that in the Constitution that it has never been used in 50 years that it's been in the Constitution, and that is a recall of a judge for failing to willfully and neglect to do their duty. Um, that is in the Constitution. Uh, it doesn't have to be a level of impeachment. It doesn't have to be a crime or a misdemeanor. It can be just willfully neglecting to do their duty. And you can call them up for a recall election, and the General Assembly can uh, vote two-thirds to take them off the bench in the middle of their term. And that's something that's never been done, but I'd like to see some um, enabling legislation to support that constitutional power. So there's a lot of things we can do, but judicial reform should be at the top of our list. Well, and I think judicial reform has risen to a much higher priority after this uh, decision, which was as being deemed as dubious by a lot of people in South Carolina. Governor Henry, Henry McMaster got his only standing ovation during his uh, inaugural address when he said that he wanted all citizens in South Carolina, born and unborn, to have equal justice. So, um, and, and the law is to be applied evenly to everybody. And I, th- I think so. I think there's a lot of attention on this issue right now, and judicial reform um, is going to be coming through the legislature. We'll just have to see what kind of form it takes. Um, so right now, it, it, Judge Hearn is she going to serve? I just don't know the timing. Does she serve until the end of the term, and then no, Justice Hill no, will be? No. Okay. No, no, uh, Justice Toll was um, already kind of serving over her term, um, so he will be sworn in. I, I don't know, but probably imminently. Um, okay. So he will take over. Okay. Well, I was. We, we had a bunch of people, of course, down for the Baptist barbecue yesterday, and I was getting mixed signals. So I'm glad. I'm glad we could talk about this this morning. My understanding is he'll get sworn in very, very shortly. I don't know the date of that. I can find out and call you offline so you can have a firm okay. answer. But that's my understanding. Okay. Um, now, the the other thing I wanted to ask you about this morning is that I I saw in the headlines that here's this is coming from WIS that there was a big securities broker deal settlement in Lexington uh, that have settled allegations that violated state security laws, and uh, they're going to pay $650,000 in penalties, apparently. Um, that was that was a pretty big case. Tell us about that. Well, and, and again, I've been in Walterboro for the last two weeks. We did we did settle the case. Um, I uh, Going to the details right here, I don't think I can go into them right now. Okay. Um, I'm happy to come back on and talk about that. Okay. But, you know, we, we, but, you know, but listen, our office on, on an annual year, not not just with securities, but we we bring in anywhere between 100 and 150 million dollars a year, and and so, you know, 600 thousand dollars, a lot of money. But you know, last month, the month before last, we brought in eight million from Google for violating people's uh, privacy rights. So 
you know, the men and women of the attorney general's office were working overtime to protect your rights, to protect your privacy, to, you know, to protect the rule of law, to, you know, protect, you know, keep public, the public safe. Uh, and so we're always in court, we're always fighting, and sometimes we're bringing in monetary recovery, sometimes we're, we're just trying to enforce the rule of law. So I'm really right. proud of what they're doing. I'm happy to come in and talk about that case at length. I just don't have it in front of me. Uh, yeah, again, that's okay. I got, I got several thousand. I just so saw that. I'd be happy to come in and talk about it, but it, it was an important case. Well, and I, I felt like it was. And, and the reason I brought it up is because I want people to know that the Attorney General's office works on a wide range of issues and are constantly doing things to protect South Carolinians from, uh, from violations of the law in a lot of different directions, just like you said, uh, $8 million from, the, from Google. I mean, that's, a, that, that's tremendous. And so I do want us to have an opportunity going it, forward for you to come back and talk Tony, about that. Yeah, t- Tony, one day I'm, I'm talking about murder. The next day I'm talking about abortion. The next day I'm talking about privacy. The next right. day we're talking about securities. I mean, it is, it is an alphabet soup over here in our office of things that we're dealing with. Yeah, I have no doubt. And I appreciate uh, very much the job you're doing. And I appreciate you coming on this morning, giving us a little bit of time to talk about the Supreme Court and about what's next. Uh, balls in the legislature's court. That's where this is going to have to get settled, uh, it looks like, going forward. Plus, we need judicial reform, and I hope the legislature is going to answer that call and come up with some good some good I, reforms. I, I can tell you this. I've spoken to the Speaker of the House, Merle Smith, and yep. he is very interested and very uh, favorable, and uh, other leaders are as well. So I think we're going to see a little bit of momentum this year that we haven't seen before. You're right. Yep. Thank you, sir. Appreciate your time today. Have yes, a great sir. one. Um, I've got an article here from National Review called Why Do Socially Conservative Non-White Voters Side with the Left? And I found it to be pretty in- pretty interesting because I've kind of been asking that question myself. And it's not just about, about Latino voters, but what is it about African-American voters who are for sure socially conservative, many of them, why do they continue to support in such big numbers the Democrat Party as the Democrat Party moves further and further away from some of the core values of a lot of these minority voters. Um, And what we've seen over the last several years is a major realignment of voting in this country. You know, the Democrat Party for years was always attacking the Republican Party as being the, the party of big business, of big corporations, of big, you know, whatever. And every now and then you you hear that, but the truth is that the Democrat Party has now become the home of the rich fat cats and the big business and the big corporations, and they have a lot of dealings with big corporations because the corporations have begun to adopt the woke agenda that the progressives of the Democrat Party, as uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders so eloquently stated, has taken over the Democrat Party and certainly taken over the White House. So, um, you know, how, how is this realignment taking place? And, and by the way, did you notice in, in the State of the Union address, one of the realignments that's happened is that blue-collar, normally union worker Democrats have migrated from the Democrat Party over to the Republican Party, and President Trump had a lot to do with that because of his appeal to people who are tired of politics as usual, uh, not necessarily the the educated class, so to speak, those with uh, advanced degrees. You know, it used to be that the Democrat Party 
represented those people, and now people with advanced degrees, the intelligentsia, the opinion shapers, most of them have migrated to the Democrat Party, and most of the regular, everyday folks, that's the way that I'm going to describe them, have found a home in the Republican Party because, again, quoting Sarah Huckabee Sanders, this is not about the difference between right and left. It's the difference between normal and crazy. And a lot of people are sensing that. So it, did you notice during the State of the Union address, President Biden kind of gave a an invitation for those blue-collar, everyday folks to come back to the Democrat Party. And the way he did it was by talking about we're going to we're going to everything's going to be made in America. Everything that we buy for federal contracting, federal job, we're going to make sure that it's made in America. That's supposed to be the law and we haven't been going by uh, Republican administrations, Democrat administrations, they found a way around it, so we're going to put that back into place. And of course that got big cheers um, from the gallery. So yeah, this is this is President Biden following those who are giving him political advice because he's he's obviously running for press again, even though the majority of his own party doesn't want him to do it, and an even bigger majority of independents and uh, moderates don't want him to run. Uh, he's still going to do it. And in order to win, he understands that the Democrat Party has been bleeding what we would call traditional common folks, get up every day, go to work, take care of their families, go to church. Those people have been leaving the Democrat Party in droves coming to the Republican Party. It's been a major realignment. And as I said, a lot of the big corporations, a lot of big business, a lot of the uh, moneyed interests, shall we say, in this country have shifted their allegiance to the Democrat Party. Now, the debate is where are minorities going to land? And we know the answer for African-Americans, as we've said. Um, I don't think uh, we've ever been able in the Republican Party in a national election to break 12, 13, 14 percent. I mean, those are those are high numbers. Uh, you know, usually it was below 10 percent of African-American vote that a Republican would get in a presidential election. Now, the Latino vote has been a little bit different, but it's fluctuated in, say, the last 50 years between 20 and 40 percent. And there's been a lot of talk lately about realignment, you know, that the Latino vote in America is realigning itself. Well, that may be happening in some places. It's, it's happening in Florida, and you can see why, because the Latino vote in Florida are, is primarily Cuban-American. And so people coming from Cuba resonate much more closely to Ron DeSantis' message of individual liberty and freedom than, say, the Latino vote in Texas, even. So in some places across the country, Republicans are making gains. But are they making gains that are... Or is, is this real? Is this a pattern? Is it a trend that's going to continue? Um, you know, and, and this article kind of goes into that. Uh, one largely unconsidered explanation 
for the disparities in the high and low portions of the Democrat coalition are less contradictory than they might seem. This is according to the National Review article. Rather than expecting that the long-standing fault lines between white and non-white Democrats will inevitably produce mass defections, conservatives should ask why those defections have failed to materialize. One possible answer, the common interests that hold Democratic constituencies together are more powerful than their disagreements. So, and, and I think that's, if, if Republicans are going to be con, consistent in drawing minority voters, they've got to speak the language of those voters. They've got to convince the minority voters that not only do they have a home in the Republican Party, but their rights, their concerns are going to be heard and defended in the Republican Party. It's not just a matter of the moral issues. It's a matter of justice issues, primarily for minorities. Black voters, for example, I'm back to the article, long one of the most loyal Democratic voting blocs in the country, are the most Christian racial demographic in the country, and they have a well-established socially conservative streak. Last month's Pew survey, for example, found that black Democrats held vastly more conservative views on transgender issues than their co-partisans and other racial groups. But a 2016 study from New America's Theodore Johnson also, also showed that conservative positions on social issues actually didn't matter in determining black voting habits. While conservative positions on issues like same-sex marriage and abortion are common among black churchgoers, a candidate's stances on these social issues had virtually no effect on the voting choices of religiously observant blacks. Now, that's, that's amazing to me. But it simply says that the history, the ability of the Democrat Party to make promises and to uh, offer allegiance to some of the things that black voters, African-American voters, that, that they value is enough to draw them and to keep them in the Democrat Party, even though these voters, these same voters, have very different views from the Democrat Party on the moral issues. Um, the fact is, back to the article, that most black voters view a Democratic vote as a heuristic is heuristic for supporting strong federal civil rights protections and support for a Republican presidential candidate as a vote against group well-being. As Goldberg noted in this study that is was cited, there's an issue where the attitudes and priorities of white Democrats closely approximate those of their less politically active non-white counterparts. The views of white and non-white Democrats have largely converged on racial issues. So disparity, if you can think about a, a pyramid and you think about the base of the pyramid and the tip of the pyramid, religiously conservative social Democrats that are minority Democrats, whether it's Latino or African, African American, would fall somewhere near the top or the narrow part of the pyramid. And those who identify with the Democrat Party because of the agreement on the racial issues, things that affect them because of their race, broadens out the base of the pyramid, and the majority of minority voters find themselves there. So they continue to follow the Democrat, the Democrat Party. 
Last paragraph. The practical implications of that conclusion are an entirely different matter. They point to the need for a political strategy that prioritizes turning out winnable demographics in lieu of pouring resources into trying to reach unwinnable ones. Republicans need to fish where the fish are. Group affinity can and does change, but it's far more difficult to dislodge than many Republicans seem to believe. Conservatives continue to predict that Hispanic voters will find a religious connection with many, many white Republicans and that religious connection can prove far more culturally and politically consequential than any effort to create a politics based on ethnic or racial identity. Now, that's what David French argued this past summer. He says that this is a trend that's going to continue because of the draw and the commonality along religious and cultural lines between Hispanics and Republicans in the Republican Party. But so far, this last line here, so far at least, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that the Democrat Party's mobilization of ethnopolitics has been a resounding political success. Ethnopolitics, putting out a message that affects the issue of race to minorities, and that issue of race trumps all other issues when it comes to which political party that minorities are going to support. And so that means if we're going to continue to attract Hispanic voters, we've got to find a way beyond the what we would call the cultural issues to plug into issues that affect race that Hispanic voters are concerned about. And we're going to have to do the same thing as a Republican Party if we're ever going to crack the domination that Democrats have over African-American voters. What is the biggest threat to public education today? Um, if you're a progressive, you just answered parents. You believe parents because you believe the state should raise its children. In fact, there's actually editorials being written now by progressives suggesting that parents are not equipped to raise their own children and that the state should have primary care, that is, primary responsibility for instilling values into children. And you know what? I'm, I'm actually kind of glad that they're just coming out and admitting that now. But that that tells me a lot about the, the culture that we're in, that they would dare say such a thing, uh, because if they had said such a thing 10 years ago, the outrage and the outcry would have been deafening. And I'm not hearing a whole lot of outrage about it, uh, the fact that they've just kind of said the quiet part out loud, that what we really want is we want your children. We're, you know, conservatives have known this, but for them to actually now, they've always denied it, and now progressives are pretty much admitting it. A lot of progressives would say that the biggest threat is parents and then money. We, we don't have enough money. If we just had enough money, because that's always the answer for progressives, more money. doesn't matter how it's spent. doesn't matter if it goes to actually pay for something that would improve a child's opportunity for education. Uh, it, that, that doesn't matter. It, it's, it's just money. We, we just need more money. Usually, that's more money for teachers' unions, uh, more money for progressive causes to go into political pockets uh, to push that more of a progressive agenda. Uh, so there's an article today at National Review. Actually, it was published several days ago. I'm just now getting to it um, two days ago. It's by Matt Paprika, and he answers the question by saying that radical teachers' unions are the real threat to public education. And I believe he's right. I'm, I want to go through this because 
I think it's important that we understand this. In South Carolina, we have one of the best chances that we've ever had for real education reform. We have a conservative legislature, I mean, by the numbers, according to party, and we have a conservative superintendent of education. Uh, I saw Ellen Weaver yesterday at the barbecue, and I'm telling you, uh, you know, just she's doing good work. Uh, there's there's just, there's there's good stuff going on already, and she's just getting started. Uh, we've made an incredibly important decision in South Carolina about who's going to lead the education efforts for our children, and Ellen Weaver is a champion. She's going to be very successful. Um, but here's the here here's the story from National Review. Chicago will vote to elect a new mayor in less than a month. One of the front-running candidates is Brandon Johnson. He's a political operative who's being backed by the Socialist Party, United Working Families, and his former employer, the Chicago Teachers Union. So it, this is great, isn't it? I mean, you've got Chicago, one of the, used to be one of the great cities in America that's in complete collapse. Crime is rampant. Uh, people are leaving Illinois in droves. They're getting out of the state because it, it's poorly run and the cities are a disaster. So, And now the Socialist Party is backing a major candidate for mayor of Chicago as if socialism is going to be the answer to Chicago's problems. CTU, which is the back to the Chicago's teachers' union, rose to national prominence prominence by focusing on growing support among public sector teachers unions for political power. Chicago's experience with CTU should be a warning to school districts across the country. The union's political ideology and practices harm teachers and students alike. And can I just put parents in there too? Because parents are suffering because these teachers unions want to cut them out of the picture and then absolutely create an environment that is ripe for failure for these students to make real progress because the teachers unions agenda doesn't have anything to do with implementing reading, writing, arithmetic, sciences. No, it has to do with implementing an agenda to turn every school age child into a LGBTQ plus hero. And as long as that as that's happening, we're not going to have the kind of education for our kids that we need. The primary aim of Chicago Teachers Union is no longer the teaching of children, but rather political power for the union's leaders and their ideas. Since a leftist group called the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators, or a CORE, took over CTU in 2010, both student proficiency and enrollment have dropped. The more power the group has secured, the harsher the impact has been on students. Based on an Illinois Policy Institute analysis of Illinois State Board of Education student proficiency data for third through eighth grades between 2010 and 2014, the share of Chicago public school students considered proficient in reading dropped by, are you ready for this? It dropped by 29%. That's almost a third in just a few years. In math, the share dropped 30%. 
After a change in state testing between 2015 and 2022, student proficiency dropped 33 percent in reading and 31 percent in math. This is a downward trend in case you don't, you know, or, or like me, you're math challenged. I have to read the things a couple of times. But this is a plummet in student proficiency. As of the past full school year, nearly 80% of Chicago students could not read at grade level. 80%. Only 20% at reading at, at reading at grade level. 15% showed proficiency in math. So that means 75% did not. In other words, students suffered as the union bosses grew political muscle. And that's going to continue to be the case. The key to education is parents and teachers working in tandem to have the best educational opportunities for students. Parents and teachers. Yes, there's a role for administrators. There's a role for, for principals, vice principals. There's a role for school boards. But all of that has to be working in concert. And when you get a teacher's union that is in the business of power, that's what they're looking for. They want power. They want political power. They want to be on the news. They want to be in front of progressive politicians. And they want to take the minds of school children and transform them into lifelong progressives, whether they can read or not, whether they can do math or not. That's, that's irrelevant. What's important is the ideology that these kids get steeped in so that as they grow up, they become the future generation of the next teachers' union, the next people seeking power for the sake of power, and the next generation seeking to be to putting forth progressive values that are basically destroying the education of our children. The thousands of teachers around the country who are serving and teaching our children well should beware power-hungry teachers' union leadership whose interests are contrary to the heart of education. In Fomi Nakaidi, is a Chicago public schools teacher who laments that truth. Quote, I cannot stand behind an agenda to politicize education as a status symbol. I want the best outcomes for our children, for them to believe in themselves, to believe in their dreams. Her stance against CTU's extreme leadership got her berated and bullied by union members, but she's remained loyal to her kids, and she is not alone. Joe Okel, another Chicago teacher, said, The union may be good and may have good intentions, but the people using the union for their own political gain are the problem. Okel started an after-school chess club to keep students off the streets after one of his students was killed by a stray bullet as he headed home. This is Chicago, after all, run by progressives for years. Okel ran afoul of the union during one of, his, one of its strikes when he crossed the picket line to be with his students. The union expelled him but continued to take dues from his paycheck that were higher than the membership dues he had been charged as a union member. Quote, we need to have checks and balances on their power. You see, when both money and power are involved, politics becomes exponentially more Powerful. CTU financial records show that only 19% of union dues go to actually representing teachers. The other 81%, I'm going to, you want to take a guess? Administrative cost, overhead, and politics. Those politics include advancing socialist candidates, such as Johnson, who's running for mayor. And folks, I'm, I'm telling you, this is the threat. 
there is a class of people in this country who want to indoctrinate your children against you as a parent and against the values that you're trying to instill in them that you know will give them the best chance to succeed. We've got to have our radar up, we've got to be aware, and we've got to be willing to push back. I think that's happening in South Carolina. It needs to be ramped up. Uh, something else you need to know, his radio talk, 919-897, is uh, going to go away as a talk radio format. That will happen on March 31st when Gary Miller retires. Uh, this program, of course, is going to be affected because uh, it's uh, hard to come in and do a radio show when they won't let you in to have the microphone. Uh, they're actually going to be doing, and, and that's not a negative thing, don't get me wrong, um, they're going to be putting some type of music format on 919-897. Don't know yet exactly what that's going to be, but uh, it uh, coincides with Gary's retirement. And um, so this program is going to continue in some form. Uh, I've already ordered the equipment to put in my house to make sure that we're going to continue. I'm working on a website, website development uh, so that you can stream the show live. You can listen to it. I'm going to try to keep it up in the mornings because that's when a lot of people listen. Um, it'll probably be between 7.30 and 8.30 instead of 7 to 9. Uh, we're, we're not going to do two hours because the hour format will be better suited to the pro, uh, promotion of the podcast, and I'm going to be pushing the podcast pretty hard. So when we get to March, my goal is to have all of this nailed down so I can begin to give you addresses. I can tell you, you know, from a digital standpoint, online, where you can find the show, exactly what the show is going to look like. And what the name of the show is going to be, I'm thinking about, uh, I think I'm going to change the name up a little bit uh, just because I want to make sure that people that tune in understand that we're going to be talking about politics and culture based on the truth of God's Word. Uh, there's not a lot of people doing that, and we need it. Talk radio needs a grace factor because there's so much talk radio, and, and, and some people just push back against what I just said. They, they think the day of speaking the truth and love is over. It's time to be mad and yell at everybody. And that's what a lot, is, a lot of that's happening on talk radio. And whereas I think we as believers need to be passionate, we need to be firm in what we believe, we've got to find a way to communicate that that's compelling, that can bring people around instead of driving people away by the anger and the vitriol that sometimes comes out of a lot of talk radio that's conservative. That's not what conservatism is. Uh, we've, got, we've got a logical argument to make. We've got a foundational statement based in, at least on this program, the Word of God. And we need to make that argument and statement in a way that is winsome for people. Nothing wrong with being winsome. There's a reason. It's called winsome. Because it wins some. You might get people to actually come over and agree with you. So um, anyway, more on that to come. Just letting you know uh, that March 31st, the other programs, I know a lot of you listen to other programs just beside this one, besides this one um, uh, on the station, but all of that will change. It's not just this program. It's the format is going to change, so it'll affect everything. Okay, uh, six takeaways from the House hearing on Twitter's suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story. A key House committee, this is coming from Daily Signal, by the way, Fred Lucas, 
A key House committee put former Twitter executives on the record Wednesday about the suppression of the New York Post reporting on the Hunter Biden laptop story just weeks before the 2020 presidential election. Twitter, under the leadership of our witnesses today, was a private company the federal government used to accomplish what it constitutionally cannot, limit the free speech, the, the free exercise of speech. That's according to Oversight and Accountability Chairman James Comer of Kentucky. Although the lights and video feed went out in mid-afternoon, not long after the lawmakers returned from a recess, the committee eventually was able to resume its hearing. Polling shows that the suppression of the Post reporting on the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop, including information that President Joe Biden might have benefited or at least was aware of his son's overseas business deals, could have affected the outcome of the 2020 election. 30 percent, uh, excuse me, 13 percent of the people that were polled said they would not have voted for Joe Biden for president had they known about this. Well, that's enough that it could have changed the election if all of them were uh, serious about that. Of course, we don't know, but that's what they say. We have to go by what people tell us. So here's some highlights from the hearing. Um, number one, restrict speech and interfere with elections. Comer called the situation coordination between the federal government and big tech to restrict, restrict protected speech and interfere in the democratic process. The committee chairman noted that Twitter worked hand-in-hand -hand with the FBI to monitor political speech. Many Americans didn't know about the Hunter Biden laptop situation because of a coordinated cover-up by big tech, the swamp, and mainstream news, Comer said. Now mainstream media outlets have verified the laptop, but the damage was already done. I mean, and that's true. After the election, all of a sudden, the news media media woke up and said, well, golly, this really is Hunter Biden's laptop. Shazam! I mean, <laughs> yeah. Now, when the, the voters can't do anything about it, I mean, it's the same thing with President Biden and his document debacle. You know, they cover that up before the midterms so that it doesn't affect what people do when they go to the polls. You know what? You can't have free, fair elections if the electorate is kept in the dark about major developments about the people that they're going to vote for or not vote for. Free and fair elections is based on an informed public. That's why we have Newspapers. That's why we have the media. That's why we have digital uh, information, news websites, CBS, NBC, ABC, all of the alphabet soup of information providers are supposed to not have their thumb on the scale. They're supposed to put out the information and let the American people decide what to think about it. But no, today, the newspaper, the, the, the newspaper and uh, information industry as a whole are run by progressives. And so they, they tell you not – they don't just give you information. They tell you what you ought to think about it, just like that story I was talking about from the Greenville News earlier this morning. Very biased toward getting people riled up that there's not a female on the South Carolina Supreme Court for the first time in how many years? I mean, this is – it, it's getting it's not giving you information it's feeding you a narrative and there's a big difference information is important for an informed electorate feeding a narrative 
is not what the press is supposed to be doing. Number two, Twitter concerns about Russia and another January 6th. Joel Roth, Twitter's former global head of trust and safety, said he had outright opposed suppressing the New York Post account, but supported a milder measure based on concerns about Russia meddling in the 2016 election. Quote, I still remember the rage I felt when I saw accounts that names like Pamela Moore and Crystal Johnson, accounts purporting to be real Americans from Wisconsin and New York, but with phone numbers tracking back to St. Petersburg, Russia, Roth said. Which brings us to Hunter Biden's laptop in the New York Post. In 2020, the trust and safety team noticed activity related to the laptop popping up on Twitter, and that activity at first glance bore a lot of similarities to the 2016 Russian hack and leak operation. Twitter had to decide what to do. The only information we had to go on to make this decision was what had been publicly reported, and in that moment, with limited information, Twitter made a mistake. Yeah, that's going a long way to admit that what Twitter did was wrong. But at least he's on the record in front of Congress making that statement. Number three, admission that la the laptop story didn't violate Twitter policies. Roth, the former head of trust and safety for Twitter, admitted to the panel that the New York Post reporting on the ca contents of the Hunter Biden laptop didn't violate Twitter's policies. No. In fact, he answered directly. A question from Jim Jordan. Mr. Roth, did the government tell you the Hunter Biden laptop story was fake? Roth, no, sir, they did not. Jordan, did they tell you it was hacked? Roth, no, sir, they did not. Jordan went on to say that Twitter acted to suppress the Post reporting without evidence, but after the apparent nudging of the FBI. Number four, how Trump pushed Twitter. Representative Gerald Conley, Democrat from Virginia, said the Trump administration had sought to squelch political speech on Twitter, pointing to two examples. Yeah, but the thing is, Twitter didn't respond to those. The question is not, does the government try to influence social media? It does. The question is, does Twitter allow that, and does, do they allow it for both parties, or do they have the thumb on the scale for the Democrats and the progressives? And I think the answer is yes. Number five, AOC conceded that the Hunter Biden story was half true. It's actually all true. And number six, Nazis in the White House. During the hearing, Comer asked Roth about his own tweet calling Trump administration officials Nazis. And Roth had to say that he regretted the language that he used. Yeah, he does that now when there's not an election on the table. That's all the time we've got for today. I'll see you in the morning at 7 o'clock. I hope you'll join us.